It's always a wrench when autumn leaves start to fall and the evenings close in, even though I'm always the last to leave the Lido as it shuts for winter, dragging my feet all the way. Autumn has always been a season I relish. Those crisp mornings when jumpers and wool jackets are pulled from the back of the wardrobe for the first time, when socks make an appearance paired with new leather brogues and resolutions are made. And of course, there are the colours. A stroll in the park is all golden yellows, conquer browns and rusty reds as trees morph into skeletal versions of their bosky selves. For me, it's a time of apple orchards, roasted pumpkin and afternoons in the garden, rake in hand. This edition of Confect Corner celebrates autumnal ritual and the earthy abundance of this time of year. We'll get a lesson on biodynamic farming, attend a harvest festival on a remote Finnish island and sniff some vegetable scents that conjure the smells of autumn in all its glory. This is Confect Corner and I'm your host, Sophie Grove plants don't go on forever so there's a sort of real mixture between things still looking blousy and beautiful but a a sense of an end coming as well I think. And then we've got the kind of more hardcore vegetables like your parsnips and swedes which haven't traditionally been flagged up on the perfume bottle but maybe that will change. We just live quite close to the volcano and we had so many dramatic eruptions through the centuries but It's also giving us this beautiful, fertile land, which is a gift. Welcome to the eighth episode of Confect Corner. As always, I'm joined by Gillian DeBias and Confect Style Director Marcella Palak. And this month, Marcella's in Zurich and Gillian is in Paris. Hello both. We are really a pan-European um, gang this episode. Bonjour Hello. Sophie, bonjour Marcella. Bonjour Gillian. Hello Sophie. <laughs> Hi. Sounds like the Eurovision Song Contest. I know. We're like on the three. You know, we've got this wonderful golden triangle um, for Confect Corner today. It's really fantastic to to be in in all these European capitals. <laughs> and even more wonders that in a couple of days we're all going to be in Paris together, uh, seeing the shows. Exactly. We're making our way across to you, Gillian, for for Paris Fashion Week, um, which is going to be glorious and and a real celebration of the industry. I think I'm so looking forward to it. <laughs> Well, the energy here is just incredible, uh, Sophie Marcella. You know, I think you're going to just bask in the city that has really found its way again and just enjoying being back in the spotlight, enjoying opening up again. And really, I haven't been able to go inside to too many museums or fashion boutiques because it's been a beautiful Indian summer and I've just been walking and walking and walking and enjoying seeing the Parisians sort of having their city back, really, and and living in the city as uh, as they love it. Well, you've already set the tone, um, Gillian, but um, we usually start the episode with um, something that's caught your attention or piqued your interest this month. And you've been to a rather interesting sounding exhibition. Well, you know, with our lovely Beirut friends, Kamal and Rabi, they hosted a dinner and um, I reconnected with a wonderful, young, talented Lebanese architecture who is in Paris. He's just been designing an exhibition for the uh, Institut du Monde Arabe and it's called Lights on Lebanon. And it's really a tribute to the resilience and the vibrancy of the Lebanese art scene. It's a year on since that uh, horrific explosion in Beirut. And it's a tribute to that because, you know, the history of Lebanon in the last 50 years has been so extraordinary. And art is always a bit of a barometer of that. It reflects it. It goes against it. So the exhibition is very cleverly curated with each decade having newspaper clippings on the wall. So it shows what's going on culturally politically at the time and then you walk through a room full of art that in in some way responds to it and the the walls are this beautiful dusty pink color and made partly from the soil of Lebanon so I, I can't recommend it um, more highly um, as I said the architect is Carl Gerges and he's designed the exhibition co-curated it and it's on until January the 2nd. Um, Marcella, you just got back from Milan Fashion Week. What did you see? 
There was also a beautiful Indian summer with golden lights and uh, beautiful weather every day. It was amazing. And especially I enjoyed that people, the fashion crowd, was so happy to see each other again in person. It seemed like in at every corner there was a party going on. So <laughs> I saw a lot of joyful, wearable spring fashion in bright gelato colors, lots of handcraft, crochet and embroidery. I love the collection of tots um, made by the new creative director, Walter Chiaponi. It was really beautiful. Then, of course, as we covered already, Plan C, Colville, and also very nice Bali with its workwear-inspired collection. Marcello, you were sending me some glorious pictures, little snapshots. And the gelato colours, I mean, you say it's very, there's some very vibrant and you know, these blues and pinks and, and, and yellows that kept on popping into my inbox. Yes, indeed. The collections were, I think, people were enjoying life again, thinking on holidays and going outside. And the colours uh, of the spring and summer collections reflected these emotions. Now, Sophie, you've been to Athens, uh, haven't you? I have. I've just um, come back from a couple of days in Athens for the Monocle Quality of Life Conference, where I was hosting a few panels, and it was amazing. I mean, what a beautiful city at such an interesting point in its evolution. We were talking about how it's having its moment and people are flocking from around Europe for this kind of creative sense of, of I mean, slightly, you know, it feels very east there. The smells, the texture of Athens and the kind of energy of the city is very palpable and very distinct. And it did remind me of my time in Istanbul, but... It was it was such a wonderful couple of days, and I've I've sort of bottled it. I found <laughs> this wonderful brand called Naxos, the Naxos Apothecary, um, which is a beautiful brand from Naxos. But the products are so wonderfully evocative of Athens as well. I went into these some of these beautiful Orthodox churches, such amazing decadent, new gilded icons, and this sense of candles lit. And 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 I, when I was smelling one of the the scents I bought back from the Naxos apothecary, it really just transported me back to one of those moments that I managed to grab um, away from the madness of everything, and and just that sense of um, calm and that musty, wonderful incense that you find in, in Greek churches. Perfect for fall, winter. Well, I think it's time we got started with the programme and what better way to kick off our autumnal theme than by celebrating the harvest. Nestled between Finland and Sweden and surrounded by the Baltic Sea, the inhabitants of the autonomous Öland Islands have relied on subsistence farming and fishing for centuries, growing just what they need without surplus for trade. Life this far up north follows the natural rhythm of the region's four very distinct seasons. Each year, the islanders celebrate the end of the summer season with a traditional harvest festival, Skurdafesten. Farms open their doors and welcome visitors from near and far, with the farmers and fishermen touting their fresh produce. We sent our reporter Petri Burtsoff off to the islands to find out more. At the Bolstaholma Gord, in the Yeta region of the main island, the atmosphere is festive on a sunny autumn's day. Some kids jump around haystacks, others race around a makeshift track made for paddle tractors. A dozen or so cows munch on hay and pose for the passers-by. The farm's chicken and roosters are on display too, as are a flock of the island sheep, an indigenous breed producing some of the finest quality wool in the world. There are musical performances too, and lots of food to boot, all local, of course. Homemade ciders and lemonades exchange hands, large onions and potatoes are bulging from hemp tote bags. The roots of this farm reach all the way back to the age of the Vikings, with Anne Sundberg and her husband Hendrik as its current caretakers. The main reason why we have this harvest festival so is that the consumer have this opportunity to meet the producer, and buy uh, products from the producer and uh, talk to the producer and so on. This uh, connection is very, very important. And uh, all people are very interesting and know 
I should say they know uh, the important thing to buy local food. So, and what kind of local produce can we find on Åland? Even that it's a small area, Åland, we have uh, quite a lot of uh, local products like uh, apple meat, fish, cheese, bread. What kind of cheese? This sounds interesting. Mattas Gårdsmejeri in Sund. They produce their own uh, products like uh, local fetaost, for example. Oh, It's very nice. Feta cheese, feta yes, cheese. And, and also a local halloumi. <laughs> yeah, they call it fry cheese. Bolsta Homes is one of the dozens of open farms during the Harvest Festival. It attracts up to 10,000 visitors a day during the three-day festival. A staggering number given Åland's population of just 30,000. Yes, it is. We try to have something for everybody, for the whole family. We have art exhibitions for parents <laughs> or older elder people. And we have uh, different kinds of foods. We have homemade burgers. And we have all from uh, meat burgers to uh, vegan also. And uh, then we have a lot of different uh, local seller. Uh, they sell uh, their own products like apples to onions to handicraft, arts, a lot of things. Open Water Brewery, a local microbrewery in the southwestern region of Limland, offers another take on the Harvest Festival. There are no farm animals or wayward children jumping around in haystacks. Instead, locals in their 20s and 30s are sampling artisanal beers and eating street food prepared in on-site food trucks. Young islanders are keen to leave their mark on the traditional festival and have decided to do it their way. I meet Mikaela, who runs one of the food trucks together with her business partner Jack. I run this business, Waffelrakan. It's a food truck, and we are here today, and we are selling waffleraken. It's like a potato waffle that's made of raw potatoes, and that you do in a waffle iron. And we serve with cream fry and onions, and top it with fish roe and salt and pepper. Oh, that sounds really tasty. Is it locally produced ingredients that you are using? Uh, yes, uh, the potato is actually from uh, my boyfriend, he's a farmer, so he is having the potato and onions. We would like to do it like in a modern way, like it's the food truck, it's more, you know, modern, and uh, but the food is very um, original. It's like råraka, and that's a very classical dish here in the north, but we do it in a modern way. A lot of the local youth, um, they were born on the island, they moved to study and worked somewhere else. But I'm seeing a lot of young people here at the festival. What's the story behind that? It's like fantastic because everyone that's not here, like they are studying or moving someone else, somewhere else and working, they always come home to this weekend because everyone wants to enjoy the Harvest Festival. It's like we must go there. So everyone's coming home and stay at their families and go out like Friday, Saturday and Sunday and eat. So it's very important for the young people. What happens in the evenings? Are there any Sjöderfest parties happening? <laughs> yeah, uh, someone's having like from, they're going on the Harvest Festival and pick up uh, foods and drinks and they then on the evening they gather around and like make the food and serve and drink and having a little small harvest party. <laughs> Later in the evening I meet Mats Löfström who represents the autonomous region of Åland in Finland's parliament. He explains to me what the festival means to the islanders and what agriculture means for the island's culture and identity. Well, the Horus Festival is probably the best event of the whole autumn when we are bringing out the potatoes, the onions, the apples are ready for harvesting and uh, bringing all together a feast for good food and uh, seeing all the farms open. Everyone, I mean, going in... Italy or France or in Greece, uh, you see how proud people are for their farms and for their products. And we don't have the same tradition in the Nordics, I think, but it starts to develop and the Harvest Festival is the main event for that. A small island of 30,000 inhabitants have its own diary where we can have fresh milk, ice cream, 
cream, really good cheeses. Uh, we have uh, a butchery where we have both uh, lambs and cattle. Uh, so we have some really good meat uh, here, also locally produced, never leaving uh, the islands. And I mean, if you look on Sweden and uh, Finland, for example, this has been centralized. There are only, I mean, some big, really big producers where uh, the animals are transported for, I mean, not that long distances, but still it's uh, not so local as it was in the past. Here everything is still local and uh, everyone knows that in order to, uh, to, uh, to have that also in the future, you need to buy those products because otherwise those uh, industries or the farms cannot exist. Lövström explains how the Harvest Festival has helped the locals discover what their fellow islanders have done with the local produce and thus inspired young people to engage in agriculture too. People see that, oh, those are doing fantastic thing with lamb, lamb meat. Okay, maybe we should do something with cattle. Maybe we should start a small diary with nine cows only doing some really good halloumi cheese, uh, some ice cream with nine cows. And it's super, super local and people are doing it. And it's young people who does it. And that's really fantastic. And it's important for the countryside. As the day draws to a close, I take time to digest everything that I've seen and experienced during the day. I reflect on my own experiences of growing up in a small agrarian village in Finland and my current life in a bigger city, far removed from the origins of the food I eat and the community that grew it. Harvest festivals such as Åland's Skjørdefesten play a key role in fostering a sense of community among the locals by marking a shared experience that the changing of the season ultimately is. They also connect people with the origins of the food they eat and the community that grew it. Thus they help cultivate a more nuanced appreciation for local produce, one that goes beyond seeing food for its nutritional value alone, teaching people instead that buying local produce helps keep the countryside alive and vibrant. For Confect in the Åland Islands, I'm Petri Burtsov. Thanks, Petri. All that digging up of vegetables has sparked our senses, particularly our sense of smell. While fruit and flowers tend to form the base of most fragrances, there's something grounding and nostalgic about the scents you find in vegetables, from the tomato leaf down to the earthiness of a root. We wanted to explore this further, so I spoke to an olfactory expert, Lizzie Ostrom, about the vegetable-based scents that perfumers are turning to. So Lizzie, it's great to have you in the studio and it's autumn. It's a very crisp day outside, in fact. So we thought it'd be great to talk about some earthy scents and in fact some sort of vegetal scents. And we've got some beautiful bottles in front of us on the table, but I want to start just by asking you a bit about vegetables and the scent industry because so far... I don't think anyone's really wanted to smell like a carrot. <laughs> no, surprisingly not. They're not the easiest of things to sell. Well, it's this question, what is a vegetable? And we've got things that we think of as vegetables like cucumbers and tomatoes, which I guess are technically fruits, which actually we found in quite a lot of fragrances in the last 20 years. And then we've got the kind of more hardcore vegetables like your parsnips and swedes and beetroots and potatoes, which haven't traditionally been flagged up on the perfume bottle unless you're talking about very sort of avant-garde experimental perfumers but maybe that will change and it's a sort of semantic thing in the sense that scent is very transportative and people want to have connotations of rose and beautiful images but it's also a kind of technical thing yeah i think on the semantic side if we think about the symbolism of say fruit and what it means to us culturally this idea of forbidden fruit and temptation if you think about persephone eating pomegranates and going down into the underworld in greek mythology there's that sort of story of transgression obviously adam and eve and snow white eating an apple and that's so powerful and continues to be mined by perfume storytellers and by brands because it's the idea of sort of being seduced into this sort of sexy fecund underworld of fruit. Vegetables on the other hand I mean where do we go with that so it's really tricky how do you tell a story 
about a carrot. We've still to get there, really. But perfume houses are starting to use vegetable scents and notes much more. I think so. I mean, technically, it has been quite difficult because if you think about smelling basket of raw vegetables fresh from the market the scent is quite elusive so if you think about smelling a cauliflower that's not been cooked there is an odor but it's not that powerful and often it's only when you cook vegetables that you get those more overt aroma volatiles coming out of them and also eating vegetables a lot of the smell doesn't come from when you breathe them in it comes from what's known as retronasal olfaction and that's when you're chewing something and you've got it in your mouth and you're exhaling and then you get the true aromatic experience and actually that's true of fruits as well because the strawberry before you put it in your mouth doesn't necessarily smell very much so it can be quite tricky to capture the essence of a vegetable but it is starting to happen more and in fact some raw materials the sort of ingredients that are used by perfumers do have vegetal aspects to them they just weren't necessarily very popular or not used sort of beyond trace amounts. Well, we've got some lovely scents that you've brought into the studio. Maybe we could start by sniffing a few and you can talk us through some of the notes. Lovely. So this one is an interesting fragrance. Now, this doesn't sell itself on vegetal (laughs) story. This is actually Tom Daxon's Sicilian Wood, which is a beautiful fragrance. You smell it, Sophie, and see if you think it reminds you of anything sort of fresh and salady. Oh, yeah, a little bit salady, a little mm. bit green. I'm feeling a bit sort of um, rocket. It is a bit, yeah. A bit there's radishy. D- yes, rocket and radishy. It's really peppery. When I smell it, and I'm sure Tom Daxon doesn't talk about this, but we know when you're muddling cucumbers in a cocktail and you've kind of macerated them a bit, I get that really strong cucumber smell from this. And along with these sort of cedary woods and something quite sort of savoury, but it's very much at the sort of fresh, herbaceous end of the vegetable rather than anything too starchy. It's a bit Peter Rabbit. I feel like I'm down in the salad patch. Kind of rooting about. (laughs) All right, I'll be Benjamin Bunny then. If you're Peter, we'll be there together. Then there's also, and this is again the kind of thing that fragrance houses are more comfortable with. This is by Sicily, and this is Eau de Campagne, the idea of being in the countryside. So this is a classic. It's been around since the 70s. In perfumery terms, you'd probably call this kind of a fresh sheep fragrance. So it's very green and it's got that sort of mossy base to get it a bit more substantial. And this was one of the first fragrances where people really got that tomato leaf sort of feel. So if you imagine those green leaves, tomato along with the black currant. So it's slightly sort of fruity and spicy. It's funny because you're, how you explained it earlier, the idea that when you're smelling a tomato, it's so different to eating it. And that sort of prickly, sort of almost fuzzy, amazing feeling you have when you first pick a tomato, this really captures that. Yeah, and the language of vegetables and describing the flavour of vegetables, it's not something I'd been sort of particularly paying attention to. But there's these brilliant words like salinity and the minerality, the kind of language you might have used about white wines, but that really do apply to a lot of vegetables as well. This is quite a masculine smell, would you say? I think it's almost like that sort of aqua de palma, very suave, white shirt sort of feel, but with a little bit of a twist to it. So you could definitely apply it quite sparingly for that sort of earthy twist you don't want to douse yourself in this Sicily number. No, otherwise you probably would smell like a vegetable drawer <laughs> or that you've just been back from the market. But I don't know, if you were going to the farmer's market and it's a lovely Saturday morning, I feel like it's good for that kind of vibe. You're right, because it is partly about rebranding these smells and that evocative, beautiful moment when you get down to the kind of farmer's market and everything's there and Sunday morning people are drinking coffees and that's a lovely smell it's a lovely moment of abundance and nature why not smell of that rather than a rose well exactly because again if I've really been enjoying recently the smell of really fresh sweet corn that lovely soft milky scent with a sort of snap to it because it's still so fresh and it's still quite juicy and that is totally different to 
a sort of roast corn cob, which is quite sort of sickly and syrupy. So vegetables can be so many things and it's just about thinking where you kind of want to be with it. So this is a beautiful bottle anyway. It's called Like This, Etat Libre d'Orange. And I think it's inspired by Tilda Swinton. Yeah. That's where the orange yeah. comes from. <laughs> yeah, so Tilda created this fragrance in collaboration with a perfumer. So I guess it's a celebrity scent, but it's not your typical celebrity scent. I'll just spray a bit so we can smell it. The studio's getting quite aromatic now. There you are. This one, it's so funny because I've heard some people smell it and they think it smells like gingerbread and almost like a sort of Hansel and Gretel type scent, kind of raisiny carrot cake sort of smell as well. There's something very autumnal about it. It's like being in an old sort of tartan blanket in the entrance to a lovely country house where the fire's on. I chose this to talk about vegetables. So it has a material in it called immortelle, which is a flower, but that smells a little bit maple syrupy. When I smell this, I really get that Thanksgiving-y pumpkin pie smell, Mm. but not in a sort of teenage body lotion or like a sort of Starbucks coffee in a really kind of nice way. And that's, I think, those sugars. You know when you get a pumpkin and you just keep on roasting it and it caramelises and you get those reactions in the oven? It really goes in that direction for me. It's got that kind of Halloween moment. It might be a pumpkin, it might be a squash could even be a pumpkin soup. Mm. But it's it's not so edgy. We were talking about this. It's not Tilda kind of in Orlando being very androgynous. It's very cosy and it's almost like a big hug, this, yeah, this scent. Yeah, it's when she's looking after Benjamin Button. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like racking my brains for Tilda films where it's appropriate. And then the root vegetable vibe goes even further with this last scent that we have here. Quite subtle. Is it parsnips? Oh, that's really interesting. Well, again, this fragrance isn't designed to be a particular vegetable. But so this is an iris cologne from Atelier Cologne. And you would use the root, the oris root to make the fragrance. And the best iris perfumes often smell like root vegetables and carrots. But fresh carrots just dug out the ground rather than cooked. There's a real kind of connoisseur's thing around iris because it's not an easy flower to sort of get to know. It's not like your rose. It's fairly aloof and detached and not that sort of attention-grabbing. This is quiet fragrance. But that smell of the carrot and its leaves and a bit of the earth stuck to it, I think, really starts to come through here. You know, again, the carrot's kind of Trojan horsed into it. It's an iris perfume. And what we haven't necessarily seen so much of yet is kind of eau de carotte, which I think we need to get to next, maybe. Does it exist? Or no? I think there is a fragrance called I Love Carrots, which comes in this hilarious box, but I absolutely don't gravitate towards it. I mean, maybe it's a semantic thing, but I think maybe we do need to work on that. Whereas even the root of an iris has something very sort of mysterious about it, even yeah, if it does yeah. smell a bit like my potato patch. And it might take decades. I mean, we're just embracing the courgette cake, right? And it probably took a while for the carrot cake to kind of become a thing back in the 60s and 70s. We've got the courgette cake now. But you're right, I would not spend 100 quid if someone said, look, this is the most beautiful courgette you'd ever seen. I wouldn't do it. But on the other hand, it is coming in and one of the fragrance houses, and these are the people who make the perfumes behind the scenes for brands, they've recently developed five new vegetable essences using wastewater from cooking cauliflower and artichoke and asparagus and these are really cutting edge materials now and they're trying to show the industry how you can weave them in to more traditional fragrance creations to give them a twist or a boost so we might start to get there but I still don't see cauliflower being listed as an ingredient somehow (laughs) oh dear I don't know artichoke certainly has for me a very sort of wonderful charm to it I think it depends on the the look and feel, the visuals that come to mind and that somehow influences not just the connotations but how you smell the fragrance. Totally, because if you think about artichoke as a thistle 
and these beautiful still lifes with lots of artichokes in a bowl and beautifully arranged, that takes you down one direction. Whereas if you imagine sort of, you know, a Bernays sauce and dipping artichoke leaves in, that's not so much for a fine fragrance. And the way that you prime yourself to smell something will totally change the way you smell it. But I think it's this changing cultural notions. I mean, when you go to museums, you always see these 18th century sort of still lifes of, you know, game and vegetables and table just set heaving with food, which obviously was in vogue at that time and people would spend you know months and months on those works but nowadays it's not so valued and we don't really want that on our walls. No it's just not fashionable and we're very much still in that sort of modernist space of a singular thing and it's very pared down and that I guess is the way we want to smell a vegetable fragrance it's subtle and it's not heaving and abundant it's just not necessarily the right cultural moment to introduce that. But maybe this is a sort of decades-long project. I know, there's certainly a vegan lobby coming forward, so perhaps this is a moment, actually a pivotal moment, with people doing away with meat and other things and embracing all things vegetal. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Lizzie, so much for coming into the studio today. Thanks, Sophie. That was Lizzie Ostrom speaking to Sophie. Coming up, we're going to the farm, one in the Italian hills and another in a North London suburb. Plus, we learn what it's like to grow grapes for winemaking with an active volcano bubbling away behind you. Our next story comes from the autumn issue of Confect, which is out now. Before we talk about it, Marcella, I wanted to speak to you about how we think about the seasons. Uh, Releasing a quarterly magazine means that we're both thinking in terms of autumn, winter, spring and summer. And that's how we think about fashion as well. But I wondered from your perspective, I'll give you mine in a second, um, how do you sort of conceive of of the, the issue in terms of seasons and how do you avoid those seasonal cliches? Well, I think I, I start very basic and close to life. I'm I'm looking what my friends are doing in those months, what they would like to dress and what, what are their dreams to dress. And then I start to build stories. I think I don't start with collections and trends and whatever. I I love to start from the everyday life of all my friends. And it's funny because we have to project ahead because... It's not autumn when we're putting the issue together. And so you have to really use your imagination and conjure these almost childlike memories of the of the season to to get that essence of what it really means without venturing into the the world of cliche. But I feel that having a seasonal publication is such a wonderful opportunity to explore that sense of texture and memory and really sort of yeah, the ritual of each season without just parroting cosy, cosy knits or whatever. We occasionally do that. But I think um, it is very rooted in nature and, and, and human behaviour, like you say. Yes, indeed. I mean, we start, like I said, in summer, we are more outside, not working so much. And then, yeah, life comes back. Uh, in the French call it uh, la, la rentrée. When every, everybody comes back to the cities, uh, you dress up again, you have events, you have a lot of things to do. But also you're dreaming of those hikes in the in the Indian summer forests of countryside, of the mountains. I think... This is what we are dreaming of and what we are doing or try even try to do on the weekends. And I start there and then think, okay, what would I love to dress on these occasions? It's funny because there's a sense of tension and excitement about, you know, the beginning of of autumn and and the kind of as winter sort of encroaches that's very human and it it feels almost kind of like you're reminded of your mortality. And I think when I was commissioning the essays for this issue, quite a few people talked about that, the kind of lighting a fire and kind of cozing under a blanket but feeling you know there's a wrench summer's gone but you're happy that it's kind of a moment to hibernate I really like that and that's been a thread in this issue but it we could talk for hours couldn't we Marcella about us our autumn rituals 
Yes, indeed. And it starts also with something very simple. You'd like to have some new clothes, some new shoes. And I entered a boutique in, in Milano and then I suddenly thought, oh, I forgot what boots I have. So probably I first have to check what kind of boots I have before I'm looking for new ones, because actually um, to avoid to buy always the same ones. I think I've been, that, think, sure. <laughs> I've been <laughs> worrying about boots um, about this time every year since I was about 10. You can never have <laughs> too many boots in fall. <laughs> it's just such a It's just, a it's almost on cue. You have to start thinking about boots and then I'm inevitably upgrading your boot collection um, at this moment in, in the season. Well, as we said before, our next story is from the magazine and it's about the Italian hair care and skincare brand called Away. The company grows organic oil-producing herbs in its Ottavicina estate. It's a biodynamic idyll in the northern region of Emilia-Romagna. We sent our reporter Hester Underhill to visit the farm and learn a bit about how every plant, animal and insect contributes to a sustainable system. It's a sunny morning in the lush, green hills of Emilia-Romagna and Lorenzo Capecci is buzzing with excitement. He has found a crested newt on the land where he works, an indication that the farm is clean. It's a moment of great satisfaction for Capecci, who dedicates his time to cultivating crops with as little environmental impact as possible. Capecci is an agronomist, which means a specialist in the science of soil, and works for a Bologna-based hair and skincare brand called Away. He runs the company's Autoficino estate, a picturesque patch of farmland where the essential oil-producing herbs used to make its products are grown. It's a hillside idyll, with small white butterflies fluttering among patches of bright yellow calendula and deep purple lavender. There's also the odd hoof print, where a wild boar has scampered across the land, while two donkeys, Spritz and Fulmine, wander freely around the site, giving Capecci the occasional affectionate nuzzle. I really enjoy the biodynamic method because the biodynamic method, in my opinion, is the, the method that I can find it the best possible in terms of uh, consideration of the whole ecosystem. Because you consider the sky, the stars, the planets, but you also consider the ground, the plants, the animals. This pesticide-free approach to cultivation aims to give back to the land what's been taken from it. Biodynamic farming was invented by Austrian scientist and philosopher Rudolf Steiner in the 1920s, as a reaction against the overuse of synthetically produced fertilizers and pesticides that were causing a widespread decline in soil quality, Steiner developed a more holistic approach to cultivation that quickly gained disciples around the world. You look at the, at the farm as an, an organism. You have the H that is the skin of this organism. Then you have animals that are the heart. And then you have crops that are the, the member. You are arts, you are uh, legs or uh, arms. Bees uh, represent the, the nervous system because they take messages. There's a reason for every small detail on the farm, from the row of beehives to the small pink flowering sulla plants that intersperse the lavender. These plants replace the need for fertiliser by enriching the soil with ammonium drawn from the atmosphere through their leaves. Even the donkeys play their part by producing manure for Capecci's crops. Owe was founded in the early 2000s as an environmentally-minded alternative to other beauty and hair care brands. In 2013, it became the first professional cosmetics company in Italy to package its products in recyclable glass and aluminium. The Autoficina was introduced in 2010 to enable the company to grow its organic herbs rather than import them from elsewhere. Every plant variety at the Autoficina has been chosen for its specific cosmetic applications. Sage lends itself to use in anti-aging creams due to its antioxidant properties. Thyme is an antiseptic that's good for oily skin and peppermint is a natural cleanser. After harvesting, the crops are taken to Owe's production site, some 20 minutes down the road, 
where the oils are extracted through maceration using natural solvents. These are then used in the brand's array of products, which range from body oils and face masks to hand creams and conditioners. The products don't necessarily contain different ingredients to others on the market, but the secret lies in their quality due to the biodynamic system in which they're farmed. Think of it like this very Italian analogy from Capecci. Everybody likes pizza. When you cook pizza with the electric oven, it's not the same pizza that you eat when uh, you use the, the wood oven. It's a different taste, even if they have the same ingredients. That's the real difference. For Confect Corner in Bologna, I'm Hester Underhill. Thanks, Hester. And you can read Hester's full story and see some fantastic images of Lorenzo Capecci and his donkey Spritz in the new issue of Confect. Now to another farm, this time in the unlikely location of North London. Wolves Lane Flower Company is a micro flower farm in the district of Wood Green, growing an abundance of beautiful blooms with a seasonal and sustainable approach. Former theatre and fashion producers Camilla Klitsch and Marianne Mogendorf quit their jobs to launch their farm and floristry company a few years ago when this plot of land became available through Haringey Council. They have created a sweet-smelling pocket of London where they have the freedom to grow exactly what they want to for their floristry services. Convect Corner producer and part-time florist Holly Fisher headed up to visit their allotment and glass house to have a nose around and find out what happens at the farm as autumn closes in. The flower industry in this country is, you know, it's a billion-pound industry, but 85% of our flowers are imported and... That leaves a very, very small percentage of people who are growing in this country and then an even smaller percentage still of people that are growing sustainably and without chemicals. And I think one of the big things within our ethos is encouraging people to grow at home because then you avoid all of that stuff. You you know, the whole world of imported flowers can be the kind of wild west out there we don't know who's growing these flowers how how they're being paid how they're being treated what pesticides they're being exposed to what the environment has been exposed to so we're never going to be able to meet the demand that there is in London but if we can also encourage people through the workshops Mm. that we do we supply to other like-minded florists and we do weddings that that's some way in which we can have an impact But there's also something, I mean, I'm saying this as a a producer of a different kind who's also dabbled in floristry a bit. It's still a creative job, but it's such a different way of being creative. And I I enjoy doing it because I can still be creative, but I can also switch my brain off because it's such a different thing. Have you found that it's sort of a a different creative outlet for you? The priority within our jobs was often to facilitate other people's creativity and actually being able to put yourself in the place where it's your creativity that is the driving force of the business and that comes down to what we decide to grow what varieties of all the you know thousands of different seeds that we can choose from and then of course moving into the the floristry aspect as well that every time you make something it's going to look completely unique because you will never have that particular palette of flowers at your disposal again I think there's something hugely satisfying about that and I guess as well that kind of hand to head thing of you switch off your brain when you're you're arranging flowers and you just do and I think that's it's a relief isn't it in a world where we're always thinking and multitasking and you don't multitask when you're making an arrangement like that do you no and because we because we're farmer florists so because we grow the, the, the crop as well it means we also get to decide what's a flower and what's not we get to grow things or cut weeds that we're like this is exquisite and we're going to include that and that is that's incredibly liberating and much more creative we find than working to a recipe that's not to undermine people that do but we have we we have much more freedom to just work with whatever we see here you know we we don't have space to grow lots of foliage here so we get to forage on this site which is um, amazing before we go off and have a look at, at the farm maybe you can just explain a bit about what growing flowers sustainably means to start with we don't use any any chemicals we don't use any pesticides so we we're, we're growing using 
at most biological controls. That means like ladybird larvae yeah. and um, so controlling natural pests, uh, natural predators of pests. Yeah, so you would control your pests with natural predators rather than spraying them, which is what um, most agribusinesses do. And one of our big focuses every season is to try and enrich the soil as much as possible, add goodness, add organic matter into the soil because everything starts with the soil. If you have healthy soil, you'll have healthy plants. So we're, our, our major focus is, um, is using regenerative practices. Well, should we go and have a look? Sure. Should we head up to the top and walk down? Yeah. Is that good? We try to have little pockets of things that we grow for the pollinators. So things that aren't actually very useful to us, but it is good for increasing biodiversity. A brilliant example is like this big patch of borage here, which is looks really weedy and untidy, but borage is a flower that has some amazing ability to replenish its nectar. It's something like, I'll get this wrong, but it's something like every 45 seconds or something. So it's like... It's a warehouse of nectar for, for pollinators, for bees and um, hoverflies and stuff. How have you found that your relationship with the, with the earth and with nature has developed as you've done this job? Well, it's, a, it's a really big question. I think the more on a day-to-day -day basis you're, you're thinking about the earth, the more you realise we don't know. And that's not just us as individuals because certainly we've got a lot to learn, but it's just such an unstudied subject. It's, you know, there's all those amazing facts about a teaspoon of soil has as many microorganisms as we have people living on this planet or something like that, and we don't know enough about it. It's hard not to sound quite hippie, isn't it, when you're, when you're talking about this stuff, because the more you learn about soil and its potential the more excited you get and the more you realise we have to respect it. So I just think the more I've learnt, the more I've realised we don't know. I think also like we have to learn, when you're working with nature, you have to understand and you have to sort of like acquiesce, like there is room for everything. So because of the way that we grow, we, ha that we have to make room for pests because if not we drive ourselves mad and we do lose crops from time to time. You know, like, you know, we have terrible, a terrible problem with foxes on this site. They, like, dig up, they dig up sweet peas, they dig up flocks. They dig up really precious crops because that's just what they do. That's, like, fun for them. They knock over our seedlings. They, they sleep on, like, a whole bed of larkspur. But they were here before us, so we've just got to live with it. For me, my main pest is my neighbour's cat. Oh, right, yeah, <laughs> cats are pretty bad as yeah. well. Yeah. We're recording this in September, and... The season is changing, and I wonder if you can explain a bit about what the farm looks like at this time of year. It's always a real mixture where you still have a lot of colour. So the dahlias, um, we're just standing next to the dahlia patch at the moment. They're still happy, and we try and have a real varied palette. And then there are other crops, because at this point, your annuals, so something like a cosmos, which is a half-hardy annual, We've got a big bed of um, cosmos here, but it's it's all beginning to go to seed because, you know, plants don't go on forever. So there's a sort of real mixture between things still looking blousy and beautiful, but a, a sense of an end coming as well, I think. And I don't think seasons are as ever as definite as we think of them. You know, we think of winter being the end, but that is being ushered in through autumn as well. So you have to think more creatively about the ingredients you use at this time of year, looking to seed heads, looking to the kind of sculptural stems and branches and leaves beginning to turn, which will happen more and more in the next few few weeks. Autumn is so busy, like, get our bulbs in, we'll dig up perennials, we'll divide them, and then we'll fall into a heap. <laughs> <laughs> so we're inside the glass house. Well, this is an excellent example. Look at these two foxes here <laughs> hanging out on our, on our staging. They're so brave. This is the glass house. So we've set up these raised beds in here. We've put an irrigation system down. That's made a huge improvement to the, how we can grow and the quality of the flowers we can grow. And the healthier the plants are, the less problems we have with pests. But you can see some of these zinnias just here. That zinnia is probably what, two metres tall or something? That's not something you can achieve outside because it's so warm and protected in here. But we're working all the time to try and keep improving this soil and um, 
create an ecosystem because there was no ecosystem in here at all. But everything that you see in here is pretty much right. We're right at the end of the season now. So although autumn for many of us feels like it's only just beginning, in some ways it's sort of the flower season is really at its end for us. But we'll show you at the, at the bottom, we've got chrysanthemums, which are sort of our final thing that we cut. And we cut those through into November. It smells incredible in here. <laughs> this is probably what you were smelling. Oh, wow. It's just nice to be in a bit of London that smells so nice, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Especially in wood green. You <laughs> <Yeah. accept> it. <laughs> this is helichrysum, which is also well, all known as um, straw flower, which is also really good for drying. It's like a super 70s flower. Yeah, that looks one super that 70s. Love. That's so fun. <laughs> then we can show you where we dry. It's quite tough for us when we get to sort of like mid-November that we're not harvesting flowers anymore. And obviously florists make a lot of money out of Christmas, but because we have a finite amount of foliage and flowers that, because we're not going to buy in, because a lot of that stuff comes from abroad, then we have to use our own stock. Um, and so we try to limit waste throughout the season by cutting flowers and drying. So I think that's something else that we can offer that answers one of the environmental problems within the floral industry. Mm. That's what we, we hope anyway. If people continue to ask wholesalers, where did the flowers come from? Like, how were they grown? Um, can you get more British stock? Where did this British stock come from? Is it from an environmental source? The power lies with the consumer ultimately. If everyone keeps asking those questions, then in the end, the industry will start to move in a much better direction for the, for the environment. So for us, it's not a question of saying, everyone has to do what we're doing, because if you're not doing what we're doing, then you're not sustainable. It's just, let's all have a, take a bit more responsibility in getting the industry to be more green and to, you know, to be more environmental. Thanks to Holly for that report from Wool's Lane Flower Company. Now for some final thoughts on our theme this week, we've invited Jacopo Maniacci, who is the director of the Sicilian vineyard Tenuta di Fassini. The vineyard was moved to Mount Etna by its Tuscan owner, Silvia Maestrelli, in 2007. And it's one of many that has popped up in that dramatic location to take full advantage of the volcanic soil and its many nutrients and minerals. Jacopo Maniacci tells us about the riches the soil provides their vines, how that can change with an eruption, and what it's like living around Europe's most active volcano. The volcano is the biggest one in Europe, that's the most active, and uh, moving yourself uh, five up to ten kilometres in a vineyard could really mean a dramatic change in the expression and the taste of your wines. For instance, I may I make a great example, which is our vineyard here is literally surrounded by two different lava flows. The old seven hectares are enclosed between a 1911 lava flow and 1809 lava flow. You know, depending on the eruption, you can really have a different set of minerals and a different soil texture. The volcano is not always erupting in the same way from the same crater with the same intensity at the same time. And we make wines in the same place with two different soils and one area gives much more concentration and grip on the palate and tannins and, and, and muscles and the other one is much more, the expression is much more feminine and lighter and elegant and spicy and sharp and vertical. Therefore, the, the soil composition and the amount of minerals, which is always huge because, you know, it's like free fertilizer. Either the hash from the volcano is free fertilizers. It is like, you know, potassium, manganese, iron, phosphorus. There are so many minerals in it. Therefore, we do not irrigate at all. And we are 100% organic. No pesticide, no herbicide, no antiketogramic. We don't really need external addictions because everything is quite healthy here because of the volcanic activity. Of course, it's also a treat because, as you can imagine, we just live quite close to the volcano and we had so many dramatic eruptions through the centuries, but it's also giving us this beautiful fertile land, which is a gift. To me, the real soul of Mount Etna Wines is to create a mixture between 
uh, the mineral side, of course, we need minerality, so crispiness, ink, iron, in a sort of way, like even bloody sometimes notes on the nose, but at the same time, like underbrush, Mediterranean scrub, little bit of herbs, mentholate notes, a lot of spices. Etna today, it's all the focus is always shrinking into those small, small plots where the soil is so unique, where the altitude, the human heritage, the, the, the qualities in general of the vineyard are, are able to giving something unique. Each one is like a little gem, you know, a, a single piece of land, a single vineyard, which is able to express something very special. This year, the volcano has been truly active, you know, it erupted more than 70 times. It's tough to live your life having so many issues during the year because 70 times that's that's crazy and and two days ago we had a, a huge huge eruption and and the lava flow was 90 meters high and the cloud was was visible from more than 100 kilometers away from here so it's literally part of our lives in in a beautiful way it's giving us this energy and then this sort of mystic aura i think that uh, now I'm quite accustomed to, but when I moved here after the university, sometimes we have like small earthquakes and sometimes it's erupting so strong that it, it sounds like a, a, a storm or like fireworks uh, by the night and, and the windows are shaking. So it, it could be a little bit tricky to live here, but I, I love Mount Etna. I, I would never move from here. It's it's a, it's such a beautiful place. So 50-50, I would say. That was Jacopo Maniacci of Tenuta di Ficini Vineyards in Sicily. You can learn more about winemaking around Mount Etna in a report by Laura Reisman in the new issue of Confect. Uh, Sophie, how would you like to do a little wine tasting in the shadow of an active volcano? Well, I can definitely imagine (laughs) that it's a huge draw. (laughs) I mean, the drama and the kind of just sheer power of nature that people are living and working around must be very kind of awe-inspiring. But at the same time, I'd, I'd, I'd feel that it was just the presence would, would be maybe an anxiety for me. I'd, 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 I even felt that ambivalence in the report with Jacopo. He, he felt drawn to it, but at the same time kind of quite rightly a bit sort of worried and, and <laughs> frightened of this thing. Maybe that sense of danger makes the wine taste all that little bit better. I think it does. And in the report, you see people got there from all around the world and just thought, this is just my anchor. I, I'm, I'm so drawn to it. But personally, I've spent a little bit too much time in the ruins of Pompeii <laughs> to, <laughs> to really ever up sticks and move there. Well, Marcella and Gillian, we're nearing the end of the programme. And we've talked a lot about the seasons today. But before we go, I wanted to ask you a bit about your own seasonal rituals. Do your habits change as we go into autumn? Of course. And not only fashion, but also it's uh, the, the food changes. So for me, it's a ritual, you know, probably uh, Seebad Enge, where we went for a swim also. You can have their mul and frit in the evening. So this is for me kind of an autumn ritual or the, the chestnuts on fire, which uh, starts to be um, uh, starts to be offered on the streets in Zurich. So this is for me like fall. And Gillian, what about you? Well, I don't have a garden, but uh, I have a terrace. And so I have two rituals, seasonal rituals. One is in spring, but the other is in fall when I go to my favorite, favorite nursery for plants, which is Clifton Nurseries. And I change up my whole pots on my terrace. And they're, instead of like the pinks and whites and blues of spring, I look for fiery colors and green ivy and uh, orange rusty leaves so that I have a terrace that is full of color, but a different kind of color that's going to see me through the fall and hopefully a little bit of winter. Well, I spend a lot of time raking in, in autumn because I've got a beautiful tree. It's called a hornbeam in my garden and it just drops tons of leaves. And I, I love that ritual. And, and for me, 
autumn as the trench coat comes back in and I just really love putting the, my trench, I've got so many of them, putting my trench on and getting on my bike and sort of braving the wind in the park. <laughs> but that's all we have time for on this edition of Confect Corner. Thank you to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company again. Our autumn issue of Confect is out now and you can subscribe at confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. Additional editing was by Chris Ablaqua and thanks to Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>